You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you who have invited us into your home, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be there with you. Those of you in overflow, I want to give a shout out to you because you've given up your seats this morning. Some of you have maybe come in a little bit late and as a result, you couldn't find a seat, but we're glad that you're there and um, we want you to hang with us as we continue to walk through this new time together. Um, I read a story many years ago about a very rich tycoon. And this rich tycoon, who was a billionaire, loved to throw very, very elaborate parties. And at these parties, he would invite some of the most famous people of the day. He would invite celebrities, movie stars, athletes, politicians, world leaders. He'd bring them all to his incredibly expensive, expansive estate. And while they were on the estate, he had the elaborate meals. He had the most popular band that was of the day to be entertained. And it was the event of the year. As a matter of fact, news crews from all the different stations would show up at this event because they wanted to capture it so the rest of the world can see how they were living and celebrating. And at the end of the event... He would take all of his guests and he would bring them around an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Now, it was your typical Olympic-sized swimming pool for those of you who have Olympic-sized swimming pools. And it was huge. He lined them all around the edge. Now, it was a normal Olympic-sized swimming pool with one exception. There were five man-eating sharks swimming in the pool. And the people would gather around and he would stand before all of these people that were on the circumference of this pool, and he would say, I just want you to know that I am a self-made man. I've taken the risk in my life, I've taken chances, and as a result of the chances and the risk that I've taken, I am the billionaire that I am today. And I recognize that other people would like to take chances as well. So I'm gonna give any person here tonight the opportunity to take a chance and a risk and have a great reward out of it. If any of you is willing to jump into this swimming pool with these five sharks and swim to the other end without having been eaten or maimed, I will give you one of three things. I will give you half of my assets to my oil company, or I will give you half of my financial portfolio, or I will give you half of my real estate properties. Nobody moved. He said it again. If any one of you is willing to take a chance and a risk and jump into this swimming pool and go to the other side, then all of a sudden you hear the splash of a person in the pool. And everybody's attention is turned and there's this guy in this tuxedo and he is bobbing up and down and diving back and forth and swimming and thrashing about and hitting sharks on the nose and by some miraculous means, he makes it to the other side of the swimming pool. He crawls out, he stands there soaking wet and just shaking. And the billionaire was absolutely beside himself. Nobody had ever taken him up on that challenge before. But to prove that he was a man of his word, he said, nicely done, young man. No one has ever taken me on that. So what will it be? Will it be half of the assets of my oil company? No, sir. Well, then you want half of my financial portfolio? No, sir. He then you want half of my estates? No, sir. He said, wait a minute. If you don't want half of my oil, half of my money, and half of my estates, just what is it that you want? And the young man looked at him and said, I want to know who pushed me in that pool. (laughs) Now, sometimes in our life, we feel the hands and the pressure of people around us pushing us. And we might feel them pushing us sometimes in places that we really don't want to go. Maybe somebody's pushing you to some kind of adventure or some kind of event that you really are not comfortable being a part of. Maybe some of you in this room, somebody's pushing you on a blind date. Hey, I want to set you up. This, perfect, this person is perfect for you. 
Or maybe sometimes people are pushing you in a direction that is contrary to your convictions and your belief, and you don't feel comfortable stepping into that. We're living in a culture today where there's a constant push and pull, isn't there? We have a culture that's constantly pushing us and pulling us to this philosophy or that philosophy, pulling us to this ideology or that ideology, pushing us into this identity or this belief. And we find that if we're not caught into the flow of culture and what it's pushing and pulling us in, then we're going to find that we're at odds with that culture. And if we stand up against that culture, we may find ourselves being ridiculed, called ignorant, closed-minded, and may be involved in hate speech. And so the difficult thing is to know how do we deal with the culture such as that. Now, our culture is filled with all kinds of philosophies and hot-button issues that it's constantly trying to pull us into. Our culture is constantly trying to tell us this is the way we should think. And there are a lot of hot button issues out there, way more than we can cover in our series. We're beginning a series today called The Elephant in the Room. And as we look at the elephant in the room, we want to be able to look at some of the hot button issues of our day, what culture is telling us we should believe and why we should believe it. Now, while there are plenty of them, we have landed on four specific areas that we want to talk about during this series. And as we look at these series, we're just looking at the things that people are most talking about in our culture. They're constantly talking about these things. So where are we going to go? Next week, we're going to look at race and racism. We're going to look at what God's word says about what is racism and how we should view race as a body of Christ living in a secular world. So we're gonna look at that and dig deep into that. Then we're gonna look at the Christian and politics. This one's going to be a challenge. It's gonna probably be the most divisive of all of them because it's gonna be one of those that, that many people are already settled on certain camps and where they land. So we're gonna look at what does God's word say and inform us and how we are to view these. Thirdly, we're going to look at gender and sexuality. We need to look at what God's word says about how he created man and woman, his plan for the human race with respect to um, the complementary parts of men and women and gender and sexuality. We're going to close out with that. But of all the things that we can look at, today we need to begin at a place that provides for us the foundation. And what is the foundation? The foundation is truth and authority. This is where we need to begin. Because if you don't begin with truth and authority, then we're going to miss it and we're going to be in all different places when it comes to these issues. And truth and authority is the foundation for how we are to live and conduct our lives. Now, we call it the elephant in the room. Let me tell you what the elephant room isn't. The elephant in the room are not the topics that we're going to talk about. The elephant in the room is truth and authority. It's truth and authority. You see, you thought the elephant in the room was going to be all these other things. No, because what's happened is people are gathering together. They're talking about race. They're talking about politics. They're talking about gender and sexuality. But most of the time, what is quiet in the room that's looming about that nobody wants to discuss is objective truth and absolute authority for our lives. And this is really important. And, and George Barna just did a research in 2020. And here's what he discovered. He discovered that in the evangelical Christianity movement, only 4-6% hold a biblical worldview. That's shocking. Only 6% of evangelicals hold a biblical worldview. That was in 2020. In 2023, he just did another one. That number has dropped to 4%. Why? Because of the inundation of culture constantly pressing and pulling on us is confused people and the body of Christ as well. Why is it that truth and authority are so important? Here's why. What I view as authoritative truth 
most influences my thoughts, my words, my emotions, and my actions. What I view as authoritative truth, absolute truth, that is true for all times, all people, in all circumstances, and all conditions, that truth and any authority will guide me in how I think, feel, and act. Let me just give you an illustration. You remember back in 2020, there was this thing called COVID? You remember that? And during that time, people were so separated and divided over the issues. We didn't know a whole lot about COVID in the early days, so everybody's trying to do what we need to do to mitigate the spread of COVID. But what happened was everybody found their own authorities, and everybody was listening to their own experts. And because of that, there was so much division. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Should we social distance? Should we not social distance? Should we shudder in place? Should we practice herd immunity? Should we take hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin? Should we not? Should we get the vaccine? Should we get the booster? Should we shut down schools? And our decisions mostly were based upon who we thought were the authorities that were important. And as a result, you know what happened? What happened was many people were proved wrong and many people were proved right. And we followed the authorities that we thought were most important. Now we have an authorities all through our culture, but no matter how you break all the authorities down, there are really only two. We are either going to live by a biblical worldview or we are going to live by a secular worldview. It's the only two options that we have. And in the church, we are either going to live by a biblical worldview, which becomes the lens in how I make every decision in life, or I'm going to live with a secular worldview. Now, we're living in a culture that's almost completely secular. And the question is, how did we get here? So here's what I want to do for the next couple moments. I want to give you kind of a history lesson of how we got to where we are. And you will understand the challenge that the church has today because of it. So let me just give you this little history with this chart. Prior to 1685 was known as the pre-modern period. And in that time, God's existence was not questioned at all. Matter of fact, this was during the foundation of our own nation and um, our nation, as many other nations, their laws and their moral codes were built upon the word of God or biblical and religious truth. We can find in America that we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And because we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles, our laws and our codes followed the teaching of Judeo-Christian principles. James Madison said the Constitution was created for a moral person and it cannot do anything other. And so if we are built on Judeo-Christian ethics, then people understood that and they operated and the laws of our land followed that and God's existence was not questioned. However, in 1685, from 1815, became the Enlightenment period. And during the Enlightenment period, there were advances in technology, there were advances in education. People began to move from the, urban er from the um, rural areas to the urban areas, to the universities. And then what happened was God's existence began to be questioned. And people began to question the legitimacy of, of Christianity in the public forum. And so what happened during that time was the introduction to secularism. And secularism is defined as this. It is the separation of religion from civil affairs in the state and seeks to remove or to minimize the role of religion in public squares or spheres. Now, it really wasn't meant to be bad. Secularism is just simply was saying this. Let's get together. Let's have a discourse. But what we're going to do is we're not going to bring religion into the mix because we don't need a religious war. All we need to do is deal with the policies, put religion aside. And in our country, we began to do that. Thomas Jefferson received a letter from the famous Danbury Baptist Association and when the Danbury Baptist Association was talking about some issues, he comes up with the separation of church and state. 
And then when Thomas Jefferson begins this secular movement within the United States that says, let's put religious things aside and let's deal with just a secular place. But what happened was it began to be questioned. Now let's go back to the chart. After we go through the enlightenment period, God's existence is in question and secularism has come into the culture. But it didn't stay that simple. In 1815 to present, we're in what's called the postmodern period. And in the postmodern period, God's existence becomes privatized. It is for you, it's for your private, it's for your home, it's for church. And how is it that it became privatized? Very simple, because secularism actually moved into what's known as secular humanism. And it didn't just stay on a surface level. It began to go deeper and actually has become a religion. And secular humanism is a belief system that embraces human reason, secular ethics, and philosophical naturalism while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. Secular humanism believes humans are capable of being ethical and moral without religion or belief or in a deity. So we go back to the chart and here's what we see. That from this time, secular humanism began to take over. Christianity and godly thoughts and teachings become to be privatized. And you're supposed to keep those private. You're not supposed to have them in the school. No more prayer in school. No more Ten Commandments on the wall. No more nativity scenes to be seen. Why? Because we have become purely secularized in all of our culture. But then Tim Keller adds one more to it. Right before his death from pancreatic cancer, Tim Keller said that we have moved from a secular humanism to what he calls programmatic secularism. And here's where we are today. It's an intentional process that seeks to relegate God exclusively to one's private life. And then bombard media, education, and the public forum exclusively with secular thought, philosophies, and ideologies. And what do we see in our culture? We see this taking place. It's in every one of our universities. It's found its way into our public school system. It has found itself into entertainment, into Hollywood, into Disney. It has found itself even to athletics and sporting events where we can't even watch sports without there being some push of everything to be secularized and God to be privatized. But it's gone further than that. Now he wants to infiltrate into your private lives, into the life of the church. And then what has happened is this, this authority of secularism has risen to the degree that it's all around us. And our faith is simply to be privatized, to be kept in our homes, and we're to be silent. And the problem is this. If we speak out on biblical authority... Dealing with issues of sex and sexuality, we are attached so many phobias to our name. And what happens is when we don't go with the flow of culture, culture comes against us. That's where we are. Here's the challenge of the church. The challenge of the church is how do we live as faithful followers of Christ to proclaim the truth of Christ in a secular world in a Christ-honoring manner. Let me tell you what we're not going to do in this series. This series is not about me preaching some messages to get you hyped up and jumped up and shout amen like at a political rally. We will not do that. This is not a series of messages for us to point our fingers and condemn other people in culture while we put on our self-righteous robes of piety. We're not going to do that. This is a series that is designed to help us to see in this secular culture, how do we live a biblical worldview that is honoring to Christ and transforming to people around us. That's the goal of this series. And when we're in this culture, many of us want to ask the question that David asked in Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
What do we do? Well, God is always so good, he gives us exact information on what we should do. And here's what I'm gonna do the rest of this time as we've set this up. I wanna help us to see what we can do and what God is charging us to do as a church to live in a way that's Christ honoring to a decaying culture. So open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is towards the end of the New Testament. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verses, we're going to look at chapters 3 and chapter 4. Now, we got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time left. But what I want us to do is look at seven things that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. Now, you're thinking seven things. I did not bring supper. Um, We're going to go through these seven things pretty quickly because they are self-explanatory and self-convicting at the same time. So looking at these seven things that the Apostle Paul says to young Timothy, Timothy's his protege. Timothy's being trained for ministry. He is a pastor in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing his very last words because he's about to be executed by Nero, who has a systematic plan to smash out Christianity in the Roman world. They were under severe persecution. Paul's on death row because of his faith in Jesus Christ, because he so stands against the culture that they're going to execute him. And before he is executed, he writes to Timothy about the condition of the culture and what we are to do. Here's what he does as he begins in chapter three, verse one. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Does that sound familiar of what we're reading? The culture that Timothy was facing is the same kind of culture that we face today, except ours may have more intensity to it. And so what does he do? Paul gives us some very important things. He teaches us a few things. The heading is how to live in a secular world with a biblical worldview. How do we do that? Paul gives us seven things. Here's the first thing. He says, don't be alarmed by gross depravity. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. He puts it this way. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He said, Timothy, understand this, in the last days. Now, the last days is not referring to the days just before Jesus comes back. The last days are the days between Jesus' resurrection and when Jesus comes back. So these apply to Timothy. And he's saying, right where you are, these are things that are happening right now. He says, Timothy, pay attention to this. Don't be alarmed by the level of depravity. Why? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Every human heart apart from Christ is deceitful and is desperately sick. The word desperately sick means incurably sick. There's nothing you can do. Secular humanism can never take a fallen, sick heart and make it better. It only gets worse. And as we've seen in our own culture, morality continue to slide to areas that we never dreamt we would have to deal with. That's the picture of the human heart apart from Christ. It is depraved. So what is Paul saying? He says, listen, believers, when you're living in this world, Don't be shocked by the depravity that you see. Human hearts left to themselves will always drift into deeper sin. And you and I were there apart from Christ and it's by his grace that he's pulled us out of that depravity and has given us a new life. So the first thing is we can be grievous. We can have a righteous indignation about what's happening, but we really shouldn't be alarmed. 
Jesus wasn't even alarmed in his day when he stood before immoral people. And remember this, Jesus was the only perfect person who walked the earth. And yet he loved and he dealt with people even in their depravity. So he says, first of all, don't be alarmed. Let me show you the second thing. He says, not only don't be alarmed, he says, don't be allured by godless deeds. Don't be allured by them. Here's how he puts it. He says, avoid such people. Now, when he says avoid such people, he's not saying don't have anything to do with them. Don't ever talk to them. Don't share the gospel with them. They're going to hell. Leave them on their way. Good luck, good riddance. It's not what he's saying. They need the message of the gospel. They need us to be in their lives. They need us to be telling truth because aren't you glad somebody told you the truth of the gospel and your fallenness? I am. And they need that. What he means when he says avoid them, he says don't be allured by their lifestyles because some of the people who are living these godless lives are actually in the church. There are people who have the appearance of godliness but no power. These are people who have infiltrated the church. They're living a life of godlessness. And yet what they're doing is they're claiming that they're okay with God. You know, it's okay to have this lifestyle and believe in Jesus. He understands. It's okay for you to embrace this kind of living. Jesus made me. I was born that way. So therefore, he understands. And what happens is they come and they start trying to say that they have a relationship with God even though they live in sinfulness and other people can be lured by that and deceived by that and to think, well, you know, if they're okay with God, I'm probably okay with God. And the problem comes deception and there are a lot of people who are going to hell with a smile on their face because they've been deceived. He says, avoid them. Don't be allured by their lives. They might have this form of godliness, but their hearts are darkened with sin and separated from a holy God. Then he starts giving us some positive things. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. This is a progression. He says, listen, don't walk and listen. Don't stand and pay attention and don't sit with him. In the Old Testament, when a person sits, it's a sign of an act that has been completed. And they agree. Don't even walk with them when they live that way. So he says, go back to the, don't be alarmed by gross depravity. Don't be allured by godless deeds. Now he starts giving positives. He says, do amplify a life of godly discipline. Do amplify a life of godly discipline. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, you, however, here's a contrast. Don't be like them, Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. He's saying, listen to me, Timothy. You have followed me. The word follow means literally to walk in somebody's footsteps or to walk in their footprints. I remember when Ryan was little and we were walking through the snow one day, I looked behind him and he was step by step right in each of my footprints, walking just like that. And what struck me at that moment is, you better be careful how you live, Phil. You got someone following you. And what Paul is saying is Timothy is following behind him. And what is he doing? He's applying the teaching that he learned. He's applying his conduct. His aim, his purpose in life is the same. His faith is the same. His patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecution and his sufferings, all of these things. He's paying attention to Paul. He's listening to him. He's watching him. He's modeling him. And then Paul says later, he says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now that sounds pretty boastful. I don't know that I would tell people you need to imitate my life. But Paul was so committed to the Lord Jesus that he could say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And then what's he doing? When he imitates Paul, he's imitating Christ and he's following this godly life. Here's what Paul is saying. Timothy, you live in such a way that you're distinctively different from the world. Be different from the world. Stand out from the world. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I was in Africa and I was there doing one of these migrations of the wildebeest. 
And I told you how stupid wildebeest are. They can't see, they don't smell well, they just follow the herd, they jump right into danger. But there was one thing among the wildebeest that stood out, zebras. Right in the middle of these herds of wildebeest are zebras. And the zebras are there and they love to hang out with the zebras. Why? Zebras have keen eyesight. They have an incredible sense of smell and they can alert danger at any moment. The wildebeest don't have a clue. And as they're hanging out with the zebras, they're in this crowd of ugly wildebeest or these majestic black and white striped horses standing out, constantly looking, sensing danger, smelling danger when the senseless wildebeest have no clue they're there. That's the picture of a believer in a secular world. We are to be so distinctively different that we stand out from the world in such a way that we see the danger. We sense the danger. And we're warning people who don't even have a clue of the danger that's heading their way. So he goes back, he says, don't be alarmed, don't be allured, do amplify, number four is hard, do acknowledge persecution will come from godless deceivers. Persecution will come. He puts it this way in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you're living a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. Paul is telling him this. Paul knows this. He is in prison. He's waiting execution. Timothy has been persecuted and he has gone through his suffering and he's saying, if you're going to be persecuted, you're going to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. I love what John Stott says. This. He says, godly living arouses the antagonization of the world. I love that. Godly living arouses the antagonization of the world. Jesus put it this way. He says, if the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would not hate you, but you are not of this world, therefore the world hates you. If you're living according to the philosophies and identities of the world, you've got nothing to worry about. You're the best friend of the world. But if you're living a godly life, your lifestyle brings a sense of antagonization towards those who are living contrary to you. And there will be persecution. But you see, the thing is this, am I living a godly life to where the world can see it so clearly that they have no problem attacking me? The problem is many Christians want to name the name of Christ and they want to live a life that's pseudo-righteousness to avoid persecution. But when we live godly lives, the world is going to come after us. Now, I got to say this. We live in a culture where we really don't have to worry that much about persecution, don't we? We like to talk about persecution. Oh, they unfriended me. I'm a Christian and they unfriended me. Oh, I blocked off of social media. You know, they don't follow me anymore because I said something about Jesus. Why are we trying to please the world? We are called to be distinctively different from the world. And when you live your life to that degree, the world will come against you. I love Billy Sunday, was a professional baseball player of years gone by. And Billy Sunday was converted to Christ and became an evangelist. He began traveling all over the United States and he had these incredible conferences. He had all of these crusades going on and he would preach and he would preach about sin and its effects. He would call people to repentance and to leave their lifestyles of sin and come to faith in Christ. After one of these crusades, a man came up to him. He said, well, Mr. Sunday, Mr. Sunday, I gotta tell you something. You're preaching. You're stroking the cat the wrong direction. He said, well, sir, you just need to turn that cat around. <laughs> and the thing that needs to happen in our culture, believers, we need to live in such a way that the world sees the godliness of our lives. And there's a certain uncomfortableness that the world feels 
when we're living like Jesus. I got to tell you this. If people could come to this church week after week and hear the preaching of this church and never be convicted in their lives in any sense, but only made to feel good about themselves, then we have missed the mark. Because our goal is not to make people feel bad. Our goal is to live lives in holiness. Well, when people see that, there's a conviction about their own life that comes from God. And something is wrong. So, if we're going to live in this world like this, we need to live with godliness. Don't be alarmed. Don't be allured. Do amplify life. Acknowledge persecution, number five, here it is. And do stand on the authority of gospel distinctives. Here's the big thing. Here's the big piece. We have to stand on the authority of God's word. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. Verses 14 and 15, he says, but as for you, there it is again, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. He says, Timothy, you keep going in what you've learned and what you firmly believe. The things that you've learned and the things that are the convictions of your life, you keep pressing in on those. Don't let the world change your convictions because it becomes difficult for you. He says, remember from whom you learned it. He learned these things from his grandmother Lois and his mom Eunice, two single women who raised one of the greatest preachers in the New Testament. His dad either died or his dad abandoned the family. But Lois and Eunice took him from an early age and taught him the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings. And he learned all of these things. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped in every good work. He says, God's word is inspired. It says, all scripture is breathed out. Some people want to translate it, all scripture, that is breathed out. That's an error because it leaves it up to you and me to decide what is and what is not scripture. All scripture is the breath of God. Here's what it means. It's inspired. The word inspired literally means breathe out. It is the breath of God. All scripture is the word of God. All scripture comes from the heart of God. All scripture is authoritative and truthful. The origin of all scripture is God's heart and his mind. And it can be absolutely trusted in every situation. And one of the things that we need to get a hold of at the body of Christ is to stand on the absolute authoritative truth of God unashamedly. To say, this is God's word. This is what it says. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or I like it. It is the word of God. Now, let me tell you what happens in our culture today. And I get this all the time. Pastor, what do you believe about this? doesn't matter what I believe about it. Let's look at what God's word says about it. What do you believe about this? It doesn't matter what I believe about it. Let's hear what God says about it. And then we understand that if this is God's word, it's authoritative, then I am to stand on the truth of that, even though I may be the only one in my family that embraces that truth. Because that's the source of my authority. Your authority will tell you what you think about abortion. Your authority will tell you what you think about sex and sexuality. Your authority will tell you what you think about holy and righteous living. And it's the word of God that teaches the truth in all of these areas. When God gives us his word, he gives to us a complete meal. And he says, here's my design for your life. Here's my truth. I'm giving you this complete meal. I want you to take it because all of these elements are the elements that are necessary for you to have a healthy, godly life. But you know what we do? We don't want that meal. We want to go to a cafeteria style. 
No, I don't want that, but I'll take that. No, I'll take a little bit of this. Now, that just doesn't go down very easy for me. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't have any taste for that right now. I've got an acquired taste for it. And so what do we end up doing? We start picking and choosing. And here's what happens in culture. We begin to listen to culture more than we listen to God. And before long, we're caught into the currents of culture and we stand, find ourselves as believers at cross purposes to the breath of God. Somebody told me one day, I just wish God would speak to me. I wish he'd speak to me. I said, read his word out loud and he will. It's authoritative because of its origin, but it's also authoritative because of what it does. It is profitable for correction, training our lives, making us complete in every good thing. Here's what you're going to have to ask, believer. Am I really willing to stand on the authority of God's word? Is it going to be the source of truth for every situation in my life for all times? Let's go to six one. Number six. Do proclaim truth in all circumstances with gentle dialogue. Now, after he's laid all this out, he's telling us how to do it. Chapter four, verses one and two, he says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. I love this. He says, preach the word. That means to proclaim the gospel. That one thing that we are to do in this culture is constantly proclaim the gospel based on the authoritative truth of God's word. I'm standing on the truth. I'm telling people about Jesus as often as I can. Then he says, in season and out of season. Go back. In season and out of season. That, that's a sailor's term. We hear that a lot of time. In season means you've got the wind at your back and it's easy sailing. In season, there's nothing impeding you. There are no rough waters. You've got it great. The wind's at your back. It's pushing you to your destination with no struggle. Out of season is the wind's in your face. And you're fighting against it. And there's this impediment coming to you. And it's difficult. And what Paul is saying is that when times are good, preach Jesus. When times are bad, preach Jesus. When it's convenient and everybody likes you. When it's inconvenient and nobody likes you. When you find yourself in a room with people. And they're talking about the authorities of their life. And you speak and say... Well, can I tell you what I believe? Let me tell you what God's word says and how it informs my life in this. And we have the opportunity to do that. How are we to do it? He says, with complete patience and teaching. Patience and teaching. Patience means long endurance with a person who may be difficult or may be having a struggle. Patience just means I give you time. It's grace. Teaching refers to something that I've got to give myself to to walk people through it on a regular basis. And it just means that I may have to take somebody, we read a book together, we read together and I help walk. But here's what it is. It's truth and grace. Truth and grace. Truth and grace. Listen, church, this is what we need. And here's what happens when we don't have a combination of truth and grace in our culture. If I only scream truth... It becomes liberalism, I mean legalism. If I scream truth without grace, it's legalistic. I don't care about you. I'm gonna put you down, I'm gonna win the debate, I'm gonna scream at you, I'm gonna cancel you. So truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth is liberalism. Because what I want to do is I want to be kind to you and I don't want to say anything that hurts your feelings so I'll never address the issue of truth. And then what happens is both parties miss. But when we walk together with truth, the authoritative word of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, the love and the compassion that he has, we have an opportunity to have hearts listen to what we share. And I love the way he says it in chapter two. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, 
but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Whenever we walk with gentleness and kindness, you know who we're reflecting? God's heart. Because in Romans it says, it is his kindness and his patience that leads us to repentance. And if God operates that way with us, we are to operate that way with them. Standing on truth, modeling grace, loving people who are broken because they're caught in a lifestyle of sin that they don't even know is disastrous. But we love them with the truth of Christ. And here's the last one. Display a well-balanced attitude with godly duty. As we're living in this world, let's have a well-balanced attitude. Here's how Paul puts it. As for you, always be sober-minded. That means well-balanced, level-headed, thinking through it, not emotional, not flying off the handle, not getting on the internet and blasting people with hateful words and all kind of hateful rhetoric and shutting people down. That's cowardly. Be level-headed, sober-minded, Think through the process in such a way that's going to be beneficial. Endure the suffering. That means bear up under the difficulty of it. Do the work of an evangelist. He's not saying be an evangelist in an official office. He says do the work of an evangelist. What does an evangelist do? They tell everybody about Jesus and fulfill your duty. Don't stop. Keep going. Stand on biblical truth in a culture that is being captured by all the winds and the waves of the time. The writer of Hebrews would tell us this in Hebrews chapter two, verse one. He says this, be much, be careful to the things that you have heard, lest you drift from them. Be careful of the things that you have heard. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard, least you drift from them. So as we live in this culture, the first thing we have to do, listen to me, is what is your authority? What is your truth? If you're standing on the absolute authoritative word of God, nothing can shake you no matter what the culture does. And the elephant in the room is truth. And will we be bold enough in our culture to love people enough to tell them truth? I love what G.K. Chesterton said. In closing, I get this quote. Let's pull up that quote. We do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. That won't happen by shouting. It won't happen by condemning. It won't happen by screaming. It won't happen by counseling people. It happens by telling the truth and loving people as Jesus loved them. Let me ask you this question. Is God's word the authoritative truth for your home? Is your home being modeled by the truth of God that you know is authoritative? Is your marriage walking according to the authoritative truth of God? Is your singleness reflecting the authoritative group truth of God? Is your business reflecting the authoritative truth of God? Are your relationships reflecting the authoritative truth of God? of God. It begins right there. There's your foundation. And before we can talk about anything else, we have to say, here's the truth. I'm standing on the truth as best as I can in a world that will hate me for sharing it.
but I love them enough to speak the truth. We want to build our lives on God's truth. We're going to close with prayer, and I'm going to ask the band to come out wherever they are. I don't know, they might be thinking I was too long and they left. <laughs> Do I see a band? There they come. <laughs> Whew, I thought I was going to have to sing it. I would not have been good. <laughs> Father, thank you. This is a challenging message because we know that to be true as a body. But Father, we know the fear that we face in speaking. I pray, Father, that you would give us a boldness and a grace that we've never known before. I pray, Father, that we would be able to stand on the principles of your word. And Father, those principles convicting and changing our own hearts first. And I pray, Father, that as we stand on that, that the apparent love that we have for others comes through. That we love them in the midst of their brokenness. And that we are informed of that love through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are his messengers. May we be faithful to him. And Father, may our lives be built on the foundation of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.